0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the land And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God made to spring up every tree, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bidallium and onyx stone are there The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the Garden But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, of course. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. Who else would it be? It would be weird if it was someone else, so it's not. But it's still weird, because it's me. (laughs) That, of course, at the top is Genesis chapter 2 in the English Standard Version. First book of the Bible. This is the basis for our understanding of ourselves and where we come from and why we're here and what we're supposed to be about. It's not the whole story. There is more that needs to be said, and that's why there's more than just Genesis chapter two. We didn't get just Genesis chapter two and nothing more. There's a lot more prologue. The past is prologue, as they say. There's a lot more prologue that we need to study and understand and contemplate besides just... Genesis chapter 2, but Genesis 2 is at the start for a reason, for a purpose, and on purpose. And just like we want to know why we're here and what we should be about and what our destiny is, what our purpose is, we should also want to understand why Genesis chapter 2 is here and what its purpose is. In the New Testament, The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy at a certain point in his epistles to Timothy, his disciple, his much younger disciple, he writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for various things, various important tasks, like, for instance, teaching and correction and instruction unto righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Well, that has to include Genesis chapter 2. This is scripture. This has always been scripture. But then the question has to be, what is this profitable for? What is this profitable to us? And in what way is it profitable to us? I have a goal every other week until, if I stay on schedule, about mid-September, mid to late September, I should reach my goal if I stay on schedule, writing a chapter every week off from here till then. I've got two chapters written, and chapter three is due today or tomorrow, or else I'm behind schedule. So this episode we're going to talk through and flesh out, no pun intended, we're going to flesh out the content and the concept, more to the point, of Chapter 3. Chapter 3, you probably don't remember. <clears throat> I wrote it down because I wasn't sure I would remember. That's the whole idea of outlining for you. A me suitable for him. Chapter 1, I titled Male and Female, He Created Them, talking specifically about gender And the fact that God created us, the more important thing is that God created us. But just so, it's important how he created us. The fact that he created us, male and female, is a fundamental aspect of our nature, our human nature, which progressives, secular types, scientists, godless folks are at war with, just like they're at war with every other aspect of our being made in God's image, being made by God. They have said in their hearts like fools, there is no God. Just so, they don't like that we are created male and female. They want there to be no gender or an endless number of genders, which is another way of saying no gender. <laughs> and yet God said male and female. And so we are male and female, and that's important. And you might be wondering, well, why would we talk so much about that? In a book about marriage, well, it's very simple, really. We can't understand marriage unless we understand humanity. If we don't understand our humanity rightly, if we don't understand God rightly, then we can't understand marriage. Marriage has to be understood in the context of God having created humanity for a purpose, on purpose. Consequently, downstream of that, we have to understand Humanity is being made male and female. What is different besides an F-E or besides a W-O at the beginning? And isn't that funny too? All that changes from a spelling standpoint, from a word construction standpoint in the English language, all that changes a male to a female is two letters. F-E. All that changes... A woman to a man is the subtraction of two letters, W-O. And why is that? Do we stop to wonder to ourselves why the essence of man is the root of our English words for women and for females? Have we stopped to think about that? Maybe we should. Maybe that's worth further exploration. Not in this episode, but just some food for thought while we're on our way. Chapter 2, the last chapter I wrote here a couple of weeks ago, is it's not good for the man to be alone. It's the first thing that God says is not good. Everything else in chapter 1 and leading up to this moment in chapter 2, everything that God surveys and comments on and gives a value judgment for, he says is good, which is another way of saying he does good work. God doesn't do shoddy work. He is testifying to himself. Just like I might tell my sons, hey, you need to do good work because good work reflects well on you. If you do shoddy work, it reflects poorly on you. Just like that's true for anybody. It's true of God. And when God does good work, it reflects well on him. When we say that God has made a fundamental mistake, fundamental flaw, we know better We're making a truth claim about God's nature and about our nature. We need need to be very, very careful in not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought and also not thinking more lowly of God than we ought. We have to be very, very careful. That's where the fear of the Lord is instructive here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's not good for the man to be alone, which is another way of saying that man is created for relationship and not just relationship with the Almighty. This is why monasteries and nunneries are not a particularly good long-term solution for the Christian life. It's not good for the man to be alone. You could say, well, very seldom are monks and nuns living totally by themselves. They usually live in a community of other men or other women. No, no. When God says it's not good that Adam be alone. The first man be alone. A couple things that God does not do. For one, he doesn't create a harem. He doesn't create a whole gaggle of women. If one is good, lots are better. No, he creates one woman. Another thing that God doesn't do is he doesn't create a whole bunch of broskies for Adam. No, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helpmeet, singular helpmeet, suitable for him. And there's a possessive quality to that. There's a possessive quality that's important. There's an authority and a submission piece that's by design, and it's not a consequence of the fall. Now, it, like every other human institution, every other facet of our nature can be corrupted by sin, Satan is going to try and mar God's image bearers every way he possibly can as a way of getting at God. He's going to try and get us to rebel against God and turn against God. He's been at that since the beginning because he's in a long-term protracted war against God and the saints. But fundamentally, everything that happens prior to the fall with regards to humanity when God is the one setting it up, when God is the one designing it, cannot be a consequence of sin. It just can't. That would not make sense. And yet, we come to this chapter, chapter 3, and having laid the foundation, hopefully, with the first two chapters, what I want to do is I want to talk about the importance of Eve having been created second and For a more specific purpose, Adam's created for a purpose, Eve is created for a different specific purpose, though related to Adam's purpose, and we have to understand the two in relation to one another, but Eve is created to be a helpmeet suitable for Adam. When it says male and female, he created them. chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When it says that, we know that part of how Eve is made is to be an image bearer of the Almighty. That's one of her purposes. That's part of her purpose. And yet, just like with Adam, we can't stop there and say no more about it. Adam is not A statue. He's not supposed to stand on a pedestal in the middle of the garden and do nothing and just look handsome. So also, Eve is not supposed to just stand on a pedestal in the middle of the garden and look pretty. Ah, what are you doing? Well, I'm just reflecting God's image. How about you? Well, (laughs) I'm trying to tend the garden and keep it. Thank you. I'm busy trying to name animals. Thank you. You know, they're created to bear God's image and reflect God's image in an active way. And isn't it interesting that God rests on the seventh day? I mean, that's important. If the ratio is something to be emulated, and it is, because we're told the Sabbath, that's one of the Ten Commandments, we're told the Sabbath because God Sabbathed, God rested created everything that was in six days and rested on the seventh, well then that should give us some idea of the ratio. Should be a six to one ratio, a six to one ratio of work to rest. If we are up and about doing things, we should at a certain point stop and imitate God in stopping. But... You've got to stop stopping at a certain point as well. And when you stop stopping, it helps to know something of what you should be filling out six-sevenths of your time and attention and energy expenditures with. So in the case of Adam, it says he was put into the garden. Now, who planted the garden? God did, which is also fun. This is God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. Very deliberate, very intentional. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So not just trees that are producing delicious food, but trees that are beautiful, handsome, well-formed, good-looking. This is a beautiful place to be. This is a majestic and glorious and awe-inspiring place to be because God made it that way. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we're told more about specifically where this real estate, where this piece of property is located in relation to four rivers We read about gold and bdellium and onyx stones. We read about nations which would be familiar to the reader, but which didn't exist when Eden was first planted. But look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So God plants the garden and God puts the man in it, to work it. Now, let me ask you this, if you can. Don't do this if you're driving, but close your eyes. Again, not if you're driving. Keep your eyes open. But just imagine with me, if you worked in the most beautiful garden which has ever existed, the most beautiful, diverse, robust, sweet-smelling, fragrant alive, fruitful garden which has ever existed. Planted by God himself. Imagine not only that you lived there, but that your job was to keep it. Keep it beautiful. Take care of it. Work it. Look after it. Imagine that was your job. How would you feel about that? Would you feel like it was a burden? Would you feel like Well, I suppose it's about time to go to work. I reckon I should probably get rolling. Another day, another dollar. No, you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. You'd be excited. You wouldn't want to leave work, actually. You wouldn't have to leave work if you were working from home because Eden was your home, too. You'd be okay with that. That's the situation that Adam is placed in. That's his initial purpose and calling, is to work the garden and to keep it. All of the animals are brought to him, and he is supposed to name them. And he does name them, and whatever he calls them, that's their name. Which is kind of a fun thing. For somebody like myself, who's very bad at remembering names, sometimes I pick... For some reason, I don't know why I do this. For some reason, sometimes I call people the wrong name. And sometimes I consistently call them the same wrong name because they just seem like that kind of a person. You ever do that? They seem like the kind of person who would have the name fill in the blank. And I've joked a time or two with some of the kids in middle school youth group I call them the wrong name more than once. I said, ah, you know what? I'm just really bad with names. For some reason, you look like a uh, fill in the blank. It's going to be your name from now on. I apologize. Please apologize to your parents as well. I just, I just renamed you. And they get this weird, like awkward, confused, somewhat amused look on their face. Like, uh, I don't know what to say to you right now. But here's Adam. He gets to name all these animals, what they're going to be called. All these creatures God has made. God has formed every beast of the field, bird of the heavens, and God brings them to the man. That's fun, too. Like God's showing off. Like God is working with Adam. Hey, hand me that over there. Of course, Adam isn't asking God to bring the animals to him. But God is showing Adam what his role is in the created order. This is where it gets awkward for me to be renaming somebody because in some sense you're asserting a kind of authority. That's the joke of it. That's the absurdity of by renaming somebody else's kids, apologies to anybody who didn't get the joke. It was I was totally, totally joking. I'm just bad with remembering names. Not actually renaming your kid, but the fact that Adam names the animals is a kind of statement of authority. It's a statement of his position relative to the animals. The animals aren't naming Adam. Adam is naming the animals. And what's interesting, too, is it doesn't say that God made the animals in the same way that he made Adam. It does say that God formed the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, so also God formed Adam, but it doesn't say, for one, that God created the animals, beasts of the field and the birds of the air in his image. For another, it doesn't say that God breathed the breath of life into them. It does say that God breathed the breath of life into Adam. There's an intimacy there. There's a closeness that the animals don't enjoy. And when I say they don't enjoy it, I mean they weren't created to enjoy that. It's not part of their telos. That's not part of their purpose. It's not part of God's design for them. So then you come to verse 20. This really opens up the whole subject of our chapter. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So how far into creation and the history of the world are we at this point? How long does it take for us to get to this point? It doesn't say, really. I mean, it can be implied, maybe someone could be forgiven for assuming this is all happening on the first day. Chapter one, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, you read that, you might say, this is all happening on the sixth day. It's a very full day, if so. Not to say that it couldn't have happened that way. But I wonder. I wonder if you have a statement of att- a statement of intent here. I, I wonder if you have the creation of man and God saying... Let us make man in our image. Verse 27 created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is saying that the key to understanding why God created humanity is in the sixth day. But if God can create Adam first, and there can be enough time elapsed between God creating Adam and God creating Eve, that Adam gets to name all of the creatures of the field, gets put in the garden, told to work it and to keep it, if there can be enough time elapsed, more than just the couple of seconds it takes to read these few sentences, I think it's at least conceivable you might have some days, could be looking at several days, of Adam being the only creature in the garden just him and God and the animals. Only the good Lord knows for sure that someone might disagree with me and be right to do so. I don't know, but that's just the way I take it. In any event, there was not a helper fit for him. Verse 20, chapter 2. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, obviously, this can be taken entirely symbolic, entirely poetic, entirely figurative. But why would you only take it symbolically, poetically, figuratively? Why would you? Does it have to be only a literary device and not literal, not physically true, why would we break that out? Does God need to break it out? Or can God make poetry? Can God symbolize things with physical things? And isn't it better for us to be whole where every aspect of our being is in total agreement all at the same time? Isn't it better that our mind and our heart and our body and our soul would be all together singing in unison, or at least in harmony. I think so. So I read this, and I have no objections to God literally causing the man to fall into a deep sleep. I think there's a symbolic importance to that, but I think also it needs to be literally true in order to f- have the fullness of the symbolic significance, importance, meaning. He gives to his beloved sleep, we read. Psalm 127. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So also here, God gives to his beloved sleep, deep sleep. There's a sense of... Adam being on the operating table. There's a magical quality to this, but there's also a master surgeon sense about it. Adam is being put under very deep sedation and anesthetic. While he is unconscious, God does something that he could have chosen to do from the jump, from the start. And God is able to see into the future. It wasn't an oversight or a mistake on God's purpose. It was purposeful. He meant to do it in this way, in this timing, in this order from the jump. But God takes a rib out of the man. Now, how curious is that? That the woman is not made out of the dust of the earth. She's not formed out of the dust of the earth in the same way that Adam is. She's one of his ribs. She's one of Adam's ribs. God makes Eve out of one of Adam's ribs. That's trippy, if you really think about it. She's supposed to be at his side. What is it that a rib does? Why not some other bone? By the way, why not a finger? Why not a toe? Why not a chunk of ear? (laughs) I'm going to take you out of his earlobe because he needs to learn how to listen to you, or you need to learn how to listen to him, or whatever. No, no, it's the rib. Why the rib? What do the ribs do? Well, for one, the ribs help to create a home. Your heart and your lungs and your stomach. A protective home. Something hard, but also with enough of a flex that you can breathe, you can move around, you're flexible, but not so flexible that your organs are unprotected. That's what a rib does. I think that's why God made. Eve, out of a rib. Adam's response is also a beautiful thing. We don't read Eve's response here. One can wonder. But Adam's response is, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The etymology on that is curious, isn't it? There's a footnote here at ESV.org for that phrase, that very concluding line of this verse. It says, The Hebrew words for woman, ish-shah, and man, ish, sound alike. Well, thank you. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Good job, translators. You told us almost nothing. You could have just said the Hebrew word for woman is Isha and man is ish. But thank you so much for telling us that they sound alike. Wouldn't have been able to figure that one out without your four years of rabbinical school and six years of seminary or whatever. I kid, I kid. Then the very last, the last verse. <clears throat> Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So a couple things here. Adam doesn't have a father and a mother here. And yet, just like what I was saying with the sixth day, there's more that can be portended by these things thrown in, where they're thrown in, than has to be actualized and realized in the moment, that they are portended. So for instance, Adam doesn't need to leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. God created him. He has no father and mother. Presumably he has no belly button also, if you think about it. It's kind of weird. Also trippy. But it's interesting that the responsibility is laid at the man's feet. He shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Here we get a little bit stern with the men, perhaps. Or at least, let's be clear, because this is related to all the rest. It's related to Adam having been created first. It's related to the way in which Adam was created, not just when. It's related to not just when, but how the woman was created and for what stated purpose. Both of them were created individually and together Yes, there is a Venn diagram and there is something in the middle of the Venn diagram which they're both created alike to do and to be, but there is plenty outside of that overlap, which is particular to the man on the one hand, particular to the woman on the other hand. And that's why this is laid out the way that it is, very intentionally, by design. There's a blueprint here for our relationships for our conception of ourselves, for our conception of one another. There's a blueprint here that we should not dismiss lightly as though we are so much wiser than the one who drew up that blueprint. I'm going to go an odd direction at this point, And I'm going to draw in the kind of material which is going to make up the next section of And This Is Why We Got Married. There will be more to the next section than just this, but this is the kind of thing I want to address in section two, Modern Romance, is what I'm calling it. Ben Zeisloft at The Daily Wire writes The decline of the American family shown in four statistics. This is news and commentary published, I believe, just yesterday. And I won't read for you every jot and tittle here because you have to be a subscriber to read this full article. I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of some of the highlights. For instance, the four statistics. And you should read the full article in its entirety, especially if you have a Daily Wire subscription. If you don't, I would recommend it. I would recommend getting a Daily Wire subscription. I've gotten a lot out of mine. But the first statistic is that population growth is at its slowest in centuries, hundreds of years. The Census Bureau summarizes, citing decreasing fertility and increasing mortality due to an aging population, the year 2021 is the first time since 1937 that the U.S. population grew by fewer than 1 million people featuring the lowest numeric growth since at least 1900 when the Census Bureau began annual population estimates. Apart from the last few years, when population growth slowed to historically low levels, the slowest rate of growth in the 20th century was from 1918 to 1919 amid the influenza pandemic and World War I. Conservative states saw the greatest increase in growth due to relatively higher birth rates, Blue states had low birth rates and fleeing residents. New York, for instance, saw a 1.6% drop. Utah and Montana, meanwhile, saw 1.7% increases. So you know where New Yorkers and Californians and Hawaiians and Illinoisans who are so Illinois, you know where those folks moved to. They moved to Utah, Montana, Idaho. Second statistic, deaths exceeded births in half of all states. According to the Wall Street Journal, in half of all states last year, more people died than were born, up from five states in 2019. So half of U.S. states had more deaths than births. More funerals than baby showers. Half. That's wild. Early estimates show the total U.S. population grew 0.35% for the year ended July 1st, 2020, the lowest ever documented, and growth is expected to remain near flat this year. You go any lower, you won't be flat. You'll actually be literally shrinking. Some demographers cite an outside chance the population could shrink for the first time on record. Well, there you go. Population growth is an important influence on the size of the labor market, And a country's fiscal and economic strength. By the way, all y'all, you're welcome. Because we just had our eighth. So, some of the rest of you people out there need to step it up. Just saying. Next statistic in Ben Zyshoff's article for the Daily Wire. Less than one in five American households are families with married parents. That is astounding also another good reason for me to write this book for you to read it 20% and we're not we're not talking about single people no kids and also not married you know we were watching Little House on the Prairie on Saturday me and my daughter and my sons were coming and going as they heard Star Trek was back on occasionally they would stick around for Little House on the Prairie uh, maybe as much. Go figure. But there's this episode where a widow it, finds out that she's dying and she's got three children and she comes to Charles Ingalls and asks him to do her a favor and make sure that her three children find a new home when she's gone. And it's a very sad episode. It's a very Touching episode. Charles usually is a very upbeat, chipper, positive sort of cat, but you can tell it really, really cuts him deep what's happening. He's just, what can you do? Right? It's just not not an easy thing to be asked to do, not an easy situation to observe. But Charles, for his part, interviews a few interested families. And one farming family agrees to take the two boys, primarily because the man of the house wants the farm hands. He wants the labor to work his farm. And, of course, there's a little bit of an uncomfortability with that, like, mm, do you want children or do you want labor? You just want somebody to work your farm. Let's think about this. On the other hand, there is a wealthy woman from Minneapolis who is visiting. She wants the girl. She wants somebody to pamper, send to the best schools, and eventually inherit her wealth. She's getting up there in age. She's lonely. She obviously has no children of her own. She wants to pour all of her love and affection into this little girl. And there's an uncomfortability with that too because it's like, You know, you're going to be splitting up these three kids. They've just lost their mother. They've already lost their father. Now you're going to ask them to lose one another. That's just too much. And yet, in the absence of a better idea, Charles is planning on making that stick. And meanwhile, you've got kind of a rough, around-the-edges guy in the community who takes a liking to a lady unmarried woman in the community and they're kind of temporarily taking care of these three kiddos but they're not married they have a little bit of a romantic interest in one another but they're not married he's afraid of commitment and he's had a painful experience in the past he's he's been married before but his wife and his daughter i believe somebody can correct me if i'm wrong on this but believe his wife and his daughter passed away got sick and died or something something happened and he's afraid to love again and yet he's obviously conflicted he wants to marry this woman he wants to adopt these children and it really drags out to the last minute he sees these kids saying goodbye to one another trying to bravely face the situation the kids for their part make sure to tell Charles we know that you tried to do the best you could, we appreciate what you're doing, our mom told us to listen to you and do whatever you thought best, she trusted you, thanks for trying, which just goes to show also, by the way, what a difference people being submissive to proper godly authority can make, their mom's gone and they're still going to obey her, only all the more. They're still going to be respectful to Mr. Ingalls. He's trying to do the best he can. It's an obviously touching thing. They don't throw a tantrum, imagine that. They don't throw a fit, but maybe all the more their sweet, kind appreciation softens his heart just enough to let this drag out until Isaiah... Isaiah Edwards finally says, no, this is not all right. It's not all right. This is so not all right with me. I'm not okay with this. These kids should not be split up. He comes clean. He's vulnerable. He's honest about some of his shortcomings. and He's had conversations with Charles and definitely has a decision to make right then and there. And so he does. He makes a decision right then and there and asks the gal he's been courting to marry him. He says something along the lines of, well, I suppose if we're going to have a family, we should probably get married. I reckon. Now, contrast that with where we find ourselves today less than one in five American households are families with married parents. And when they say that, I mean, the actual precise statistic given here is 17.8%. A steep drop from 40% in 1970. 40% was still not great. But Little House on the Prairie ran in the 1970s. And even in the 1970s, when it was 40%, you had a very popular TV show hearkening back to the 19th century, 100 years prior, saying, this is the ideal, this is the standard. Now, do we have a standard? If we do, it is that you can have children if you want to, if it suits you, but you don't have to be married. You can want to have kids and not get married and not settle down. It's very backwards. Everything's out of order. Everything's out of whack. Interestingly enough, too, according to the Census Bureau, the average age of a woman at her first marriage is now nearly 29 years. In the 1950s and 1960s, it was just over 20 years old. The average age of a man at his first marriage now sits just over 30 years old. There's a really excellent article in the Wall Street Journal. I say excellent because, hey, wow, this is not propaganda to make us all into more leftist lefties, this is actually helpful. Good job. But studies are finding that couples who get married in their early twenties without cohabiting first have much, 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 much lower divorce rates. In fact, they have the lowest divorce rates of anybody. Go figure. Who could have imagined I would have thought the folks who wait until they've finished college and they've accomplished everything they want to accomplish in their career and they've lived their best life as they see it before giving up, pulling the plug, ending it all by getting married, getting you know, tying the knot and all that. I, I would have imagined that the people with that attitude and mindset would be the most successful in marriage when they finally do get married. I just. Uh, crazy. Weird. It's weird that young couples who put marriage first would have lower divorce rates. Crazy. 87% of American adults lived with a spouse as of 1960. Only 50% of American adults live with a spouse today. And this is to say, too, and I'm going to touch on this just briefly. I know I'm running long, but I have to touch on this briefly. I was talking with a friend of mine, I won't say who, but a friend of mine here recently about my book. And he cautioned me. He said, You know, I just, I really hope you're not going to write this book in such a way that it's going to make people who are still unmarried feel like they're somehow less than, right? And I grapple with that. I mean, that that's ringing in my ears because, yes, that's true. But also, there's something going on here. There's something in the statistics that is telling 37% more American adults that marriage is not a value. Marriage is not a priority. So I don't want to go so far into comforting my single friends and family and saying, well hey paul you know said it was his preference that everybody would be as he was unmarried so good job you know paul's happy i don't want to do that to the exclusion of digging into why 37% i mean you would imagine that if it's just that god calls some people to singleness and he calls other people to married life if it's just that And it really is a call from the good Lord and not ungodly attitudes that we have about ourselves, which are of a piece with our confusion on gender, sexuality, having children or aborting our children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Would you expect a swing from 87% to 50%? Only half of American adults are actually married and living with their spouse. That's insane. insane. Last statistic, and then we'll close. Young men are more disenfranchised than ever. And this is where I want to bring this back to the whole topic of this chapter in particular, not just the topic of my book more broadly. 15% of 25 year old to 34 year old men without a bachelor's degree lived with their parents as recently as the 1990s. According to the conference board, that figure has risen to 25%, so one in four. One in four men from the ages of 25 to 34, one quarter of men between the ages of 25 and 34 live with their parents. For young men with college degrees, living at home rates increased from 10% to 13%. At the same time, men are opting out of the labor force at alarming levels Through roughly the same period, labor force participation rates, the percentage of people who either have a job or are actively looking for one, have dropped from 93% to 87% among young men. So, again, you could say, well, yes, you know, we don't want to make the men who don't have jobs feel bad. So, let's be really, really careful to not talk too much about a drop in the labor participation rate. I don't want to do so good of a job avoiding stepping on young men's toes who are living with their parents and not working and not looking for a job. I don't want to do so good of a job that I affirm an untruth. How many of these young men have given up on moving out, leaving their father and mother and cleaving to their wife because they've believed a lot of lies and nonsense. They've been told that it really doesn't matter. How many of these young men believe that the earth is coming to a fiery end in the next dozen years or so? Sooner, if Putin uses his nuclear deterrence for preemptive strikes on Ukraine especially, I'll show them. I love the Ukrainian ambassador's comments at the UN. If Mr. Putin wants to kill himself, he needs to do it the way that that German did in the 1940s in a bunker below Berlin. He doesn't need to use nuclear weapons to go out. you have heard of suicide by cop. Something's apparently wrong with Mr. Putin, Marco Rubio says. He can't divulge more than that, but something is, something is off with Mr. Putin. It's hard to know, especially with two modern, industrialized, developed nations. The first conflict between two very modern, developed Western nations in my lifetime. In recent memory, if not since World War II, there's a lot of propaganda flying around, but that's just it. I mean, there's a lot of propaganda flying around. And as China and Russia have been willing to do the sorts of things to their own people to get a competitive advantage when they thought that a one-child policy in China, for instance, would give them a competitive economic advantage. When we know that China has its tendrils in Hollywood and in our higher education institutions, maybe even the institutions teaching teachers, and then those teachers go out and they teach young people who grow up to be young men who give up on getting married, getting a job, moving out of their parents' basement, Starting their life. I'm not saying it all has to be China's fault. Don't get me wrong. But I am saying whether it's the enemy of our souls or its foreign enemies, America attracts a lot of negative attention from evil in the world, which would love nothing more than to see young men give up on God's purpose for them. I want to help for my part, young men to rediscover God's purpose for them? What does God's word say about who you are, where you come from, why you're here, what you should be doing, where you're going, what it's all for? Because that's where life is lived. That's what life is about. As a final thought, men who don't know what they're doing, what they're about, what they're going for, will have a hard time persuading a young lady to help them. It's like when my kids have a chore or a task they need to be working on, and I'll use my daughter for example. Every now and then, if her room gets really messy, I might ask one of her older brothers to go in there and help her with it. And every now and then, her brothers will go in there to help her with it, and they'll come back in a minute or two and say, Dad, she's not working. She's just watching us work. Which of course is not motivating to them. It's like, okay, Evelyn, sweetie, honey, darling, in order for them to be helping you, you have to be working. You've got to be doing it. They can't if you're doing nothing, they're gonna help you do nothing. By also doing nothing. Well, so also young men need to catch a vision for moving out of their parents' basement, getting a job, getting a place of their own, learning how to cash flow and save money and spend money wisely. But that has to be in context. And the context for us, of course, is passages like Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1. That's all I've got for this episode, though. i got to run. It's a Tuesday morning. I'm feeling much better than I have been, but still not 100%. I've got a chapter to write. This was not the chapter, but thank you all for helping me think through out loud chapter three. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.